All right, well, it's good to see everyone, and let me open up with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your dear son. We love him, and we ask you to help us to see him more clearly, uh, that we might be transformed into his lovely image. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time now to talk uh, about those things that are relevant to leadership in all realms. And we ask, Father, that you'd just give us grace as we particularly interact on uh, the nature of true conversion. We give all this to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I don't want you to feel too guilty about not doing the assignments. Um, uh, I'm being a little ornery there. I really don't want you to not come if you haven't done the assignments. I know that there's a there's a bent to think, well, I didn't do the assignment, so I shouldn't come. Um, well, if you're able to do the assignments, of course I'd like you to do them. But I think the time is still profitable. And, uh, you know, even if you've got other guys in the church and they're not in the, in the groove of, of coming on Sunday nights, but they have any inkling toward leadership, they said, but they say, I can't do the assignments. It's okay. The assignments are really uh, an attempt to give you a chance uh, if, if you're more, a little more of a go-getter and you have just a little more time on your hands, to go after it. But they're not meant to in any way be an inhibitor for you to come to the class. And I know that the assignment of reading religious affections <coughs> was a tough assignment. In fact, did anybody get through it? And I'm going to really be impressed if you did. Did anybody make a stab at it? Okay. It's, it's, heavy, it's heavy lifting, isn't it? The fact that you weren't able to read it for today, let me suggest you put it on your 2024 reading list. Um, and if you uh, feel like after taking a look at it that it's just too much, then let me rec recommend that you at least give this one a try. And this is, this is Sam Storm's attempt to digest it and put it in a, in a much more readable fashion. I mean, it's still 200 pages, but but it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, accurate representation in distilled form, and a lot easier to read English than Edwards is. And so, um, I would encourage you. The reason I think this is important, whether you're here as a husband or a children's worker or uh, an aspiring elder, is I don't think this has been surpassed in terms of uh, examining the nature of true faith. Uh, in every realm that you're in, handout right up here, in every realm that, that you're ministering in, in any context uh, in the church, you're, you're, you're trying to be helpful to people uh, with regard to whether or not they truly know Christ. Uh, this is, this is a, a, an era in the life of the church in America where there's more confusion over that than probably any other question. And Edwards says in his prelude uh, to religious affections that there, there was no question that was more controversial in his day as to what constitutes genuine Christianity, true religion, real faith. Um, and so it behooves you as men and as leaders in the church to really be as crisp about this as you possibly can. 
Um, and so I want to encourage you that, you know, maybe ask your wife to get this for you for Christmas. And, uh, and you just put that on your list and read it sometime in 2024. You'll, you'll recognize that uh, it's challenging mostly everything that is uh, promoted in the name of conversion in, in evangelicalism. And again, we don't want to be snooty. We don't want to be snobs. But there's some things we got to get right. And we got to get the gospel right. There's a lot of things we don't have to be fussy about related to church and church life. But getting the gospel right and understanding saving faith, it's really not profoundly different from what the Protestant Reformation was dealing with. Because what is it that distinguishes Protestantism from Roman Catholicism? What's the essential difference? You should know this when you're trying to evangelize Roman Catholics because you can get all lost in things that are different, but they're not the essential difference. For instance, it's not Mary. It's not a pope. It's not incense in the, in the, uh, uh, in the service. It's not patron saints. Oh, we don't like any of that, do we? Uh, we're probably gen generally and strongly against almost all of that. But that's not the essential difference. What's the essential difference? Can anybody take a stab at it other than Logan and Eric? Yes, sir. Is it, Tell me your name again. Uh, my name is Joe. Joe. Is it uh, like the works part of the salvation? Yes. Uh, can anyone take what Joe said and put a little sharper edge to it? Justification by faith alone. As opposed to? Justification, justification by faith and your works. Yes, what are the works, that, tell me again. Baylor. Baylor, that's right. What are the works, Baylor, that the Roman Catholic Church, by the way, they wouldn't like it being called works. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but what you're calling works, what are we talking the about? Sacraments. It's particularly the sacraments. The question is, how is grace received? How is forgiveness received? How is justification conferred? to the sinner. That's the essential difference. I mean, Christology, no problem. I mean, we may not go with all the immaculate conception, uh, you know, stuff. You know, you probably don't know that my birthday is the same as St. Anne's because you don't know who St. Anne is, but she was the mother of the Virgin Mary. Um, and so she had to have some sort of immaculate conception as well because we've got to have Mary protected. Now, why are they doing all that? Because they're trying to protect Jesus. Now, we don't go there with all that. But Christology, no problem. Any problem with the Trinity? No. Any problem that we're saved solely through the merits of Christ? No. Roman Catholicism says that. The question is, how are those merits conferred to the sinner? And Roman Catholicism, it's by and through the sacraments. That's why in our day, and I've noticed that's sort of diminished in, in, in modern Roman Catholic circles, in our day when a baby was born, any of my Roman Catholic friends, my, my dad's side, Italians, Roman Catholics, what was the most important thing you needed to do right away? Christmas. Yes, baptism. Because what does baptism do? You see this grace being conferred. What does baptism do in the Catholic context? Infuses grace. 
Yes. Can you be more specific? Yes, cleansing of original sin, that's right. So that, that baby is still carrying original sin in their minds until baptism, ex opera, opera operata, I think is the phrase. It's, it's almost magical. Uh, God just does it. And you've got to get that baby baptized. No messing around. And uh, the, old, the old mothers and aunts used to be very, very insistent that we get that baby to the church and get it baptized. So that's the essential difference. So notice, what was at issue in the Protestant Reformation in particular? What was at issue was, how do we receive the merits of Christ? How, are, how is Jesus' righteousness conferred to the sinner? And we're kind of saying the same thing here. Because we're talking about, now we're talking about not whether it's by faith or not by faith, but what's the nature of that faith that saves. Or to say it in James chapter 2 language, can that faith save you? And what faith is, is James talking about in the context of James 2? He, he, he describes it. He gives it a name. Yes, devil faith. The faith of devils. He's asking, can the faith of demons save you? He's not denying that it's a kind of faith. It's just not a sufficient faith. And Edwards is really banging on that drum and uh, nuancing it like only a Puritan can. So my encouragement to you uh, for any ministry endeavor that you're thinking about is you need to know the nature of saving faith, what it looks like so that you might be able to help those around you, starting with your own kids. How many of you have kids in here? Let me just see a show of hands. Yeah, a good number of you. And grandkids. I've got 17. You know, I want to make sure, when I get them in the car, I just start working them. And the great thing about little kids is they'll let you, you know, go, we're going to the donut place, they'll let you talk about anything. They don't care. So you start talking about the nature of true faith. And, you know, maybe there's someone in your church that uh, was baptized and then they have now wandered off as invariably it happens and they know about that and you can start talking about what it looks like when somebody truly is saved so I want to encourage you to read that now before we get into that let's just take a couple of minutes to talk about our January meeting and uh, we're going to be turning a corner in January from our doctrine orientation today to leadership and management. So let me give you some, let me give you some, uh, some assignments. These are not uh, as heavy of assignments. They're a little lighter. Um, but on the 28th, which is the last Sunday in January, Logan and I have just firmed that up, uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a book called The Effective Pastor. And you can see that you're also reading in The Effective Pastor for the March meeting, date not yet set. So, it, and it's not an expensive book. You get a paperback of it. It's kind of gone in and out of print. It never really attained the popularity that some other books have attained. But one of my professors in seminary, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, 
really is high on this book, and I, and I understand why. In fact, he says he thinks it's the best book on pastoring. And uh, I think he's a little prejudiced because this guy's a fellow Scot, and uh, those, those, those Scots, they, they, they hang together. Uh, but one of the things that to me is rare, if not unique about this book, is its scope. So a book on pastoring could be very narrow, but he's talking very broadly. It's, it's clearly a modern book on pastoring from someone who is steeped in Reformation theology. And it's hard to find those kind of books from those kind of guys. Usually those kind of guys just want to write about doctrine. They want to write about maybe about preaching, but they're staying in what we might call the more obvious ministerial duties. But Peter White is nice and expansive, and he's got a lot to say about leadership and ministry. So I'm asking you to get that book and for January to read chapters 1, 11, 13, and 15. And then for March to read chapters 8 and 9, 14, and 16. Those are light reading assignments, relatively speaking. For the 28th, I'm also asking you to do Psalm 88. Did anyone have a chance to play with Psalm 22 for today? Uh, the assignment was to try to look at trajectories. Genesis for Psalm, 22? Or Genesis 22. Did I say Psalm 22? Who got a chance to look at that for Genesis 22? Now that one I'm not going to forgive you for. Because you could do that in 20 minutes. So please take note. We're going to do Psalm 88 for the 28th. Um, if that's all you do, do it. I'm trying to help you. And again, these are not just skills for ministers. Uh, for any ministry orientation, being able to see Christ and follow the trajectories is, I think, a vital skill for any man because you're going to be in some leadership capacity. So Psalm 88 for January. Um, and by the way, do you see number one there, locate Psalm 88 in the Psalter? Who's aware that the Psalter is divided into, into five books? It's easy to miss that. But the, the Psalter is divided into five books. Can anybody break down the Psalms by those five books? This will give you some extra credit. Make up for those missed assignments. So book one is Psalms 1 to 41. Book two is Psalm 42 to 72. Book three is Psalm 73 to 89. So you can see Psalm 88 is right, uh, right at the end of book three. Book four is what, Psalm 90 to 106, and then book five, Psalm 107 to, 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 to 150. And there is a progression in those psalms. Um, those, those books, remember, you know, the psalms didn't just drop out of heaven, one through 50, 150, and, and they were already in that order. Somebody had to think about how to order those psalms. And in book three... The psalms are usually considered the exilic psalms. There's a darkness to those psalms that is undeniable. In fact, I picked the darkest of the dark psalms in Psalm 88. Um, 
And it's just helpful to know that, especially if you know that the books 1 and 2, which are Psalms 1 through 72, uh, very closely track with David's life. In fact, a lot of times in the superscription, it says, you know, David wrote this psalm when he was in the cave at Adullam, for instance. So it's tracking with David's, really his persecution. And Jesus picked up on many of those psalms. And the apostles applied many of those psalms, books 1 and 2, to Jesus' sojourn here on earth. So you begin to see the trajectory of psalms, of book 1 and 2 of the psalms. Now book 3, being the exilic psalms, so they're psalms that seem to have the Babylonian exile or some sort of forsakenness by God in, 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 in the mix. When you push those forward, you begin to see that there's correspondences to the ultimate exile, which is what? Jesus' death on the cross. What did God do to Jesus on the cross? He exiled him out of his presence. He removed him from his presence. And we know that not only from general theology, but from Jesus' words while he was on the cross. What did he cry? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's right. He's being cast out. The second Adam, just like the first Adam, is cast out of God's presence. And these Psalms, numbers 73 to 89, are called the exilic Psalms. So it's just helpful to know that. See, I already did number one for you. All you got to do is number two and number three. By the way, learning to read the Bible like this protects us from a lot of silly and unhelpful interpretations. I recently heard a sermon by somebody who has very strong religious educational pedigree. Um, and he, he turned it into a, a, a psychology uh, lesson of how God knows how we feel when we're discouraged was kind of a, an anti-depression psalm. The problem is when you read Psalm 88, you can't help but be depressed. There's nothing in it to encourage you unless you say, well, God understands that you're depressed sometimes. Well, I already know that. He obviously knows exactly how I'm feeling. Psalm 88 really doesn't help me with that. Uh, but if you really are going to use Psalm 88 like that, it's way more depressing than, than any of us are struggling with. And so this Christocentric orientation really protects us from taking the word of God and, and really just making it captive to our own categories. We want to interpret the Bible on its terms. So I'm asking you to do Psalm 88. Um, so that's what's on, uh, on tap for... Uh, the 28th. That last assignment is for the, the Nets to You only students because they're in seminary and I'm expecting them to do a little bit more. Um, then in March, we don't have a date for that yet, but that's okay. Um, football will be over by then. Um, uh, uh, the, the topic there is on... Uh, uh, managing and listening, uh, still part of leadership and management. 
the books, still the effective pastor, chapters 8 to 9 and 14 and 16. And then I'm going to have a little booklet. Uh, it's probably about, I don't know, 25 pages on focused management um, that I'm going to ask you to read. I'll bring copies of that with me in January. Um, because we're talking about the whole realm of managing people. Um, and obviously listening is a critical component of managing people. Making sure you're really understanding what people are trying to say. You know it's a critical component in marriage, those of you that are married. To the extent that you listen well, your marriage goes well. It's kind of almost a direct function. I'm not saying it's the panacea, but you know as well as I do that a lot of issues with your family come, come about because you're, not, you're just not on the same page. You're, you're kind of ships passing in the night. Um, so very relevant to what we're doing. And then how do you manage that? Um, and then I'm going to give you uh, uh, an exegesis study, Proverbs 8, to do the same thing we're going to do with Genesis 22, to do the same thing that I'm asking you to do with Psalm 88, this time Proverbs 8. I'm picking these passages because I'm wanting you to see that Christ is the center of all, of all Scripture. And most people would not go to Proverbs to preach on Christ, would they? They would think, well, Proverbs, just it's helpful. A lot of pithy uh, little axioms about how to live. And there are. Nobody's denying that. Uh, it's a, it could be a course textbook on communication uh, but that's not its essential message and so I'm asking you to to do that and it's the same it's the same idea identify possible trajectories to Christ and then find New Testament passages or verses that seem to validate those trajectories test it with your New Testament um, one other thing I'm going to have you do is pick an area of ministry and decide to do a small, short, strategic plan for that area. So let's just see what areas of ministry at the church here that you might be involved with. Help me out here. Let's just kind of go through. Dominic? Yeah. Uh, do you, are you involved in any, like, youth or anything like that? Uh, not at the moment, no. So you're, you're basically dead weight. You're not helping anything. Essentially. Yeah, okay. All right. I get it. Well, how, what, how old are you, Dominic? 19. Yeah. So you are you in college yet? Yeah. Okay. All right. And Baylor, how about you? Um, any any areas of ministry? Probably just say evangelism in our uh, yeah, going to the plaza and sharing the gospel. All right. That would be an area that you could you could go for. Tell me your name. Zach. Zach. Any areas of ministry? Kind of behind the scenes, uh, facilities type stuff. So okay. Is behind the scenes stuff important? You know it is, especially when you stand up and. You know, this isn't working, and that's not working, and the roof's leaking over there, and I mean, all that stuff is important. A great area for a strategic plan. Is it Jonathan? Yes. Um, I'm not currently serving anywhere, but I know I want to do like long-term like administration. Yes, so. and Dominic, you could do the same thing. Looking ahead, what area would I like to do something in when I'm able to do that? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, administration, again, don't, don't downplay that. It's one of the gifts listed and you know as well as I do to not have guys that are capable in administration can cause all havoc. You can get in trouble with the government. 
because they're not pay, paying the payroll taxes, blah, 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 blah. Any other areas of ministry that uh, you're in? I'm not going to make everyone fess up here. Uh, what, anyone involved in children's? Yeah. Uh, my wife and I are in charge of the young children's ministry for Awana. Yeah, yeah. Huge area. What else? Or areas that you might be interested in. Tell me your name. TJ. Yeah, TJ. Uh, yeah, that's huge. The sound, I mean, churches are plagued by sound problems. I'm not saying this church is. I haven't been around long enough to know that, but I know it's a constant concern. Uh, yeah, Jordan, any? Yeah, yeah. You know, when I worked in hotels, uh, the innkeeper uh, emphasized to us that we, the desk clerks, were the most important person in the hotel. Why is that? It's the face that everyone sees. That's exactly right. They don't see the innkeeper, do they? They don't see the 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 chief financial officer. Uh, they don't see. The, the, the corporate head of, of Holiday Inns, uh, they just see this, back in those days, $3 an hour hotel desk clerk. Um, so, my goodness, ushering, uh, that, that may be the only person that they actually meet in the course of coming to church. And, uh, you know, if you're like, yeah, whatever, you know, and you don't seem excited and enthusiastic, I mean, you can do too much, but... That's a very important area. Tell me again. Rick. Yeah, Rick. I'm sorry, Rick. I should have remembered that. Uh, you, I know you're, you're retired. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, I'm, I am working a, a, a secular job. Okay. All right. And I'm mentoring a couple of uh, seminary graduates. Yeah. Well, that in and of itself could be a whole ministry. How can we move mentoring forward? How can we you know, in conjunction with the church and its leadership, how can we train other mentors so that when we're long gone, that, that can be done? You see what I'm saying? And, and all of you have either an area that you want to minister in or an area that you're currently ministering in. And as a result of the instruction that I give on the 28th, I'm going to try to set you up so that you can put together a strategic plan for that area. You know, for, for Loken, it might be the whole church putting together a strategic plan that, that directs the whole church and that the elders work and, and, and pick over to see if that really fits. So that's the, the last assignment for March. Any questions at all? Did I, mess, did I mention season passes to the Chiefs next year for anyone that completes all of these assignments? I didn't mention that, did I? All right, well, let's just forget that. That'd be, that'd be, uh, a, that'd be a very wasteful set of funding there. <laughs> Why do you say that? Some of Raiders fans. Oh, I, <laughs> I understand. A Raiders fan, and probably Psalm 88 would be good for you because it's pretty depressing, isn't it? <laughs> We were, what was I thinking, Rick? I know, what was I thinking? I was thinking pragmatically, that's what I was thinking. All right, any other, any other questions? 
So at least do you understand those assignments? Do you feel like those are clear? All right. Well, let's take out Genesis 22. We'll start there. And we're going we're gonna to read the whole thing. So I think... We read a couple of verses each. That ought to get us through it. So why don't we start with Dominic, and uh, we'll just go back and forth on the row here and then jump over. Tell me your name again. Matt. Jump over to Matt. So Genesis 22. Uh, let's read two verses each. Abraham rose early in the morning, and he saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering, and arose, and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, and saw the place from a distance. Go ahead, yeah. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his hand, took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but, but where is the lamb foiled for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for him for himself. The lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything. I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Go ahead, Rick. Oh. <clears throat> verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand of the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the, the gate of his enemies. 
And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Buzz his firstborn, Buzz his brother, Kenuel the father of Aaron. Hased, Hazo, Bildash, Vildapa, Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. Of these eight, Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Makkah. All right. And here's the question. Because as you heard today, we're trying to see Christ in these passages. And we're not trying to do it willy-nilly. We're, we've got sanity check. It's called the New Testament. To make sure that we're interpreting the Old Testament the way that Jesus and the apostles, sounds like a rock band, the way they interpreted the Old Testament. They read it through the lens of Christ. And when the leaders didn't do that, Jesus rebuked them. Even when his own disciples didn't do it, Jesus rebuked them. Remember the road to Emmaus? He, he wasn't very tender-hearted toward those guys. Uh, he, 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 he directly challenged them. Um, slow to believe all that the prophets have said. Um, so we're trying to train ourselves to do that as well. And that's why I'm giving you repeated assignments on this, because we all start off as engineers. Do you know what I mean when I say that? No idea. This United States is a country of engineers. It's not a country of philosophers. And it's certainly not a country of theologians. It's a country of engineers. We like things very linear. We like things very flat. We're not a country of poets. Uh, now, you say, well, it sounds like you don't like the United States. I did not say that. But I'm trying to understand my own culture. So to read literature the way Eastern, Easterners would read literature, it's just it's a foreign culture. That's what I'm trying to say. We're very Western. They're talking in subtleties. They're talking in types. There's, there's prophetic words in here that aren't explicitly said, here's what I'm saying. And that's not the way that we're used to receiving information, <coughs> not only as Westerners, but particularly as men. This is why marriage is so hard. Because what are wives doing? They're talking in layers of meaning. And we're just <coughs> right here. And trying to understand the layers is not, it's not second nature to us. We have to be trained. That's what women do. They domesticate us. Because we're not trained in that. Um, I've got a guy in the program this year. He's a great guy. I think he's going he's gonna to really do well. And he's got a very sweet wife, but he's very 
like that. In fact, we went around in our first home group and we asked what your favorite food was. You know, just sort of an icebreaker. And it got to him and he said, meat. <laughs> Which I suppose is a food, you know. I never really thought that was an answer someone would give to that question. Meat. Well, we're, that's kind of what we are. We're meat and potatoes kind of people. So there's all kinds of subtleties here. There's prophecy here that doesn't come right out and say, Jesus shall be born in Bethlehem like Micah 5.2. It doesn't say that. And so we have to change the way we look at it. We have to pick up on these subtleties and then test to see whether or not our hypothesis that these actually find their fulfillment in Christ the way we think they do is validated by the New Testament. Do you see what I'm saying? So, you know, there's no better way than just to try it. And so I'm going to open it up to possible trajectories. I gave one of them away in my sermon today. Um, does anyone remember? Third day. third day. Yeah, this all happens on the third day. That's not just a superfluous detail. Very intentional by uh, uh, the, the author of the Pentateuch, by Moses. What are some other types or shadows that you can see being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ from Genesis 22? And don't be afraid to give a wrong answer. It'd be better to give it a try than to just sit there and not engage. Say your name again. Josh. Josh, that's right. In verses 3 and 6, we see that wood was used for the offering. Is this the same as we see Christ on the cross, which was wood? Okay. That's a possible one. And what, what, and you're going to say, well, do you get to decide which ones are and aren't? Well, for this class, yes. Uh, no, I don't. But when you've been doing this for 40 years, you kind of get a sense. Um, and you're, you're trying to... Uh, think through, is this trajectory seen in the New Testament? It is true Jesus was crucified. Was crucified. It wasn't a fiberglass cross. We know that. Uh, we know it wasn't uh, a steel or iron cross. Um, but is that idea in any way highlighted in the New Testament other than the fact that was the building material that they used? So that would be one that I would put on the, I'm not so sure. That doesn't mean it's not possible, sure. but it would be a lesser one, I think, Josh. And again, you see how I'm sort of testing it by the New Testament? If there was something there or alluded to there about the building material of the cross, I'd be much more inclined. So I'm a little suspicious of it, not ruling it out. I appreciate you taking initiative. Who else? Jordan? Uh, verse 8 says Abraham said God will provide for himself the land. Yeah, now that one, right off the bat, can you think of lamb references in the New Testament? What, what did the apostle, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus? Behold the lamb of God. The lamb of God. What other references would we see with lamb might, that might come to mind? Lamb. Yeah, the whole idea of, of, of the sacrifice. And Jesus is described in 1 Corinthians 5 as the Passover. He's the Passover lamb. He's the Paschal lamb. That's right. You know, uh, 
what does First Peter say? We're not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with, uh, uh, but with uh, precious blood. I think it says the blood of a lamb, doesn't it? Am I getting that right? So. Yeah, in First Peter chapter one, that lamb idea is all over the place, isn't it? It's all over the place. So that's that's a, a immediate one that you grab a hold of. And what else is in that same same idea? It's it's hinted at, and it later comes to, comes to being. Where 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 is where is Isaac going when he when he asks the question? Where's he headed? To to be sacrifice. So what's the relevance of the lamb in that context? Yes. You've got a real clear substitution motif. Because the lamb is going to take the ram that was caught in the thicket. Where is that? Yeah, 13. Uh, uh, wait a minute. Oh, no wonder I couldn't find it. I was in chapter 20. God, I can't see this at all. Yeah, that ram that was caught in the thicket is a substitute for Isaac. So now we have something that's referred to as a lamb that is caught so that it can be sacrificed in place of Isaac. Now notice there's kind of an overlap here too because Isaac was going to be sacrificed. So that sacrifice official idea is prevalent as well. And if we take that to the New Testament, do we have sacrifice ideas? And again, there's plenty in the Old Testament. But when we go to the New Testament, can you think of any places where the sacrifice idea is, is, is highlighted? Like everywhere? Uh, Jordan? Oh, I thought you were raising your hands. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm just thinking of, of all the passages that talk of Christ's death. The context there is a sacrifice. Rick? In Hebrews 11, it states that um, by faith, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, whom Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Yes, and we got all kinds of motifs that Rick's bringing out from that Hebrews 11 passage. What are the motifs you see there? Sacrifice. Abraham offered him up. There's sacrifice. What else? Yes. How, how many times was Isaac referred to as the only son in our passage? I saw three. I was trying to count as I went through. And by, by the way, he's not, the only, he's not Abraham's only son, is he? Ishmael's like 14 years older. So he's the only son in the same way that Jesus is. He's the special son. He's the only son connected with promise. He's the only son connected with promise, that's right. But that obviously is a trajectory. We get that all over the place, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, yes, the only begotten of the Father. What else from that Hebrews passage at Rick read? Uh, 
We talked about third day, but specifically a third day resurrection. Yes, a third day resurrection. That's the figurative sense that Hebrews 11 refers to. You have a metaphorical resurrection. Isaac metaphorically died, and on the third day, he metaphorically rose from the dead, right? And, and in his place, a lamb was sacrificed, which is our substitutionary idea. Yeah, it's all there. It's all taking us right to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. What else? We've it says when Isaac was seed, so Yes. So can you play that out, Rick? The seed shall be called. But Abraham's whole salvation was wrapped up in the fact that there was the coming seed, singular. Yes. Does anyone know a passage in the New Testament that would certify what Rick is saying? John 8. Okay, John 8, yes. There's one even crisper than that. Galatians? Yes. Galatians 3, and the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed, singular. ESV says offspring. It's still okay, collective singular noun. Uh, he does not say unto seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, that is Christ, um, and to your seed. So you've got that seed idea, which, of course, Moses is all over because he's playing out Genesis 3.15, isn't he? The enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Genesis is all about seed. All about seed. Okay? What else? You're doing great. You're doing great. He rejoiced to see his day. There's your John 8 reference. That's right. Tell me again. Zach. Zach, I'm sorry. What are you taking from that, Zach? That there's a direct correlation with the Father pouring out his wrath. Okay, all right, all right. It pleased the Father to crush him. Uh, that's right, slaying his son. Uh, uh, we get that language in Acts 2, Acts 4. Um, anything else? Verse 13, uh, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and saw the sacrifice that God had provided that made me think of the brass serpent goes up on the pole. Okay. Lift up your eyes and look. All right, all right. So there might be a, Abraham as the father of faith is demonstrating his faith. Yes, yes. This is highlighted in James chapter 2 of Abraham having true faith instead of devil faith as evidenced by his willingness to sacrifice his son. Anything else? A lot here. It's hard to believe that Calvin wrote in Genesis 22 in his commentary without ever mentioning Christ. Not a word. Now, I like Calvin. I'm a Calvinist. But I don't like his exegesis of Genesis 22. It was reactionary. He was reacting, if you remember from last time, he was reacting particularly to Origen and the Roman Catholic theologians who were just allegorizing willy-nilly. And he, he knew that wasn't helpful. But that doesn't mean 
there isn't an allegorical sense here. Now, see, even that word, you're nervous with me using that word. But what does allegory mean? It means to speak of one thing in terms of another. So he's speaking about his son in terms of the sacrifice of Isaac. It's, it's historical. It's not myth. But nevertheless, it's allegorical, metaphorical. Those, all those words are figurative. Those are all applicable. It's, it's typological. Those are all good words if you understand that we're not playing fast and loose with the historicity of Genesis 22. Um, anything else? There's at least a couple more that I see. In verses 5 and 8, Abraham is confident that God is going to provide a sacrifice. You know, he is confident that Isaac will come back with him, he says in verse 5. I think in a similar fashion, Jesus knew he was going to be resurrected. Okay. So, I th yeah, I think that resurrection idea is further buttressed, Josh, by what you're saying. He knows he's going to come back. We know from Hebrews 11 that Abraham had a clear category for resurrection. By the way, did the, did the old boys believe in Jesus? See, this is another place where you're, you're probably your evangelical upbringing got you all messed up uh, to think that they, they somehow believed in God and in the promises of God, but it's not focused on Messiah. And we know, I think, from the verse that Rick quoted, it says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham is clear that there's a promised seed. He's clear that resurrection is true. That's why he was willing to go through with it. Why was he willing to obey God and kill his son? Because he knew the son was a child of promise. Why was he willing to do it? Because he believed in resurrection. Where did he get that idea from? Well, from the 21 chapters in Genesis that preceded him. All that stuff. There's all kinds of resurrection stuff going on. I'm going to push you here a little bit because I'm going to assume you know a little something about Genesis 1 to 21. Where would be some resurrection motifs where Abraham could have gotten his idea uh, regarding the seed from Genesis 1 to 21? Go, go ahead and pick the low-hanging fruit. There's some real nice low-hanging fruit that you could pick. Yes. I mean, what happens in the flood? The earth is destroyed. There's a, isn't there a recreation? Yes. There's a reiteration of the command to be fruitful and multiply. We're starting over. Of course, we're starting over with the realization that man's heart has still not really changed. But it's, it's a type of restoration, isn't it? It's a type of resurrection. What else? Say Abel and Seth. Yes. Abel and Seth are a good one. Cain kills Abel. It looks like we're in trouble. But God gives Adam and Eve Seth to replace Abel, who we know from Hebrews 11 is a man of faith. And don't miss creation. What's the context for the original creation, according to Genesis 2? Yes, formless and void. And what hovers over the earth? Darkness. It's, it's a picture of death. And what does God do in six days? Starting with what command? Let there be light. Let there be light. 
Yes. This is a whole resurrection motif. We go from this dead, dark, formless, whatever, to life, overflowing, teeming. And God says, it's very good. It's very good. So Abraham knew his Bible, and he'd read about these. And see, he's reading it the way we're trying to learn how to read it, seeing its ultimate fulfillment in God's plan of redemption in his son. So I think he was seeing resurrection. Anything else there in Genesis 22? In verse 7, Isaac says to his father, my father, and then Abraham responds, here I am, my son. It made me think that Jesus cried out, my father, and didn't get a response, but Isaac here does get a response from his father. That might be a stretch, but I at least saw the parallel. Yeah, I think, uh, Josh, my, my reaction to that would be that the, the idea that Zach brought up with the knife ready to plunge, I do think there's a father-son God the Father, God the Son kind of thing going on there, whether it's in that particular way or not. But I, I think you can see something of the relationship between the Son and the Father. I think you can see something of that. How about the blessing to all the nations? Verse 18. Any trajectories that would take you? to Christ in the gospel? What's the Great Commission? Make disciples of all the nations. That's right. Or Luke says that you shall preach forgiveness of sins starting in Jerusalem to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. So you see that universal blessing, which we know manifests itself in the gospel going to both Jew and Gentile, to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I see that here. And by the way, what about that little, that little verse 20 and to the end? Anything there, you can, you, know, you can see those as throwaway verses if you're not careful. They're certainly not easy to pronounce. I had to preach on Genesis chapter 10. Give that one a whirl. The table of nations. Yeah, I had out, man, I was checking my Hebrew on all those names. My goal was to just not look like an utter fool when I read them. And uh, so anything in there that you can follow a trajectory to Christ? Is there any person's name? Yes, Rebecca. Who is Rebecca? Isaac's wife. It was Isaac's wife. The seed dies if we don't have Isaac married. We got to get Isaac married so she can have Jacob and Esau. So this isn't just a well. I've got four verses to play with here in Genesis chapter twenty-two. Let's fill them up with some. No, a little genealogy doesn't hurt. No, that's not what we're doing. And when you go to Matthew one, Isaac's in that genealogy. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac. That's right. He goes right down. That's kind of fun, isn't it? This is, is reading the Bible like this at least a little new to, to, to some of you? 
or does this feel like no? At least theory-wise, this is the way I've been thinking about it. Maybe I'm not very practiced at it, but I'm theoretically with you. Give me some feedback on that, because I don't want to be beating a dead horse here. Yeah, definitely not as practiced. Kind not of as practiced. A year of seminary pushed me down that path, and then just doing it more and more. Yes, but yes. Uh, engaging, because all the scripture is connected. And so yes. it forces you to see all the, try to see all the connections. Yes, and of course we haven't even <clears throat> attempted to see the connections in the rest of the Old Testament. Remember, all of this is fleshed out throughout redemptive history. And so all of those motifs that we just talked about can be seen as we work our way through the history of Israel. By the way, what's the latest, uh, the greatest, the latest <coughs> resurrection motif in the life of the nation of Israel. The Exodus. No, but that's a good one because they were enslaved to the to the nation of Egypt like a death and now they they come out to the promised land. So that's clearly a resurrection motif, but I don't think it's it's probably the greatest. It's a great one. The Babylonian exile. 70 years. Daniel's 70 weeks. And we come out the other end. All the restoration promises which finally find their fulfillment in Christ. And I would suggest that Christ is at the center of the 70 weeks vision that Daniel has. All of those begin to be fulfilled in the restoration of Israel. Because remember, Jesus ministered in Palestine. He ministered in Israel. Uh, and that was all in place because God brought the people back from exile. Now they were still they were still under the the rule of an anti-Christian empire. You know, in Jesus' day, of course, it was a Roman Empire. But they're there. They're there. And Jesus is therefore able to be born not in Susa, but in Bethlehem. They're back in the land because of that metaphorical resurrection. Rick? The, a, a wider reading among the Puritans would bring a greater um, view of the allegorical... Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Some of you have heard of the commentator Matthew Henry, who sometimes gets negative press. Uh, but he's an example of somebody. He wrote a five-volume commentary on the whole Bible. I don't know how many times he preached through the Bible. Do you know the commentary where actually his notes from Scripture reading in the worship service? No. That's what the commentary was. That's what it was? Yeah. No kidding. No, I did not know that. Do you know, Rick, how many times, excuse me, that Henry went through the entire Bible? Oh, in his Scripture reading? Yeah. Okay. But, you know, that's an example of, of Puritan exposition. And uh, they, they had a much better sense than we do in our evangelical context. So, and the cash value of doing this, we're not just trying to tickle our academic <coughs> bone here. The cash value is what? You only had to be awake for a little portion of the sermon today. Yes. I mean, if we are transformed 
by beholding the glory of the Lord. And if Jesus Christ is the glory of the Lord, and particularly in his death, burial, and resurrection, then our reading of the scriptures to bring him out, to see him, is the most important thing we could do. Not only to come to Christ, but to grow in Christ. We're trying to see him more clearly. And we're trying to listen and read and see the scriptures. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me, John 5, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He's saying you're, you, you, you've got a Christless hermeneutic. You're not seeing that the Old Testament is really about me. And you say you believe in Moses, but if you believed in Moses, you would believe in me. Why? Because Moses wrote of me, John 5. And we're just trying to do that because we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's how we run the race with endurance, by fixing our eyes on Jesus. The cash value for this is enormous. It's enormous. You know, every time I meet with the Nets residents, we look at the psalm for the day, and we go through it, and we do this exact same exercise that we just did today. Um, today was Psalm 100. Psalm 100, because it's the 10th, so I'm in the third section of 30 Psalms, and we're going through the Psalms like that. And that will activate that muscle. Because when you see him, then what does that do? When you get a better view of him, what does that do? It naturally, just like today, it naturally promotes praise. It promotes thanksgiving. It promotes all the things that help move us along in our Christian life. It promotes clarity about what we're trying to be and how we're trying to act. So let me encourage you to continue to do that in Psalm 88. Maybe tonight when you go home. I mean, the Chiefs game will probably be over. Maybe not. Probably not. Those things go for a while, don't they? But, you know, check the score. Then sit down and do a quick reading of Psalm 88 and just get the wheels turning. Do it tonight and then you can return to it sporadically between now and January 28th. Um, all right. Religious affections. Oh my goodness. We should probably, well, let's just take a break. Let's, let's use the restroom, come back, because you're going to need all your wits <laughs> for this. So once you hit the restrooms, do whatever you need to do, and uh, we'll come back. Let's come over here, so.
Well, has to is, is strong, and then the furthermore, what constitutes validation is a legitimate question. Um, I'm probably a little on the conservative side because I don't want the baby of this hermeneutic to be thrown out with the bathwater of, of that execution of this hermeneutic. So knowing the context that we minister in, um, I mean, even when you have New Testament validation, people are still fighting with that yeah. because they want it to have only one meaning. Yeah. And this idea that it can only have one meaning. Even if you say, well, it does, the meaning is just flower. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just coming into a fuller sense. Yeah. Still, that makes people very nervous in our tradition, in our Protestant tradition, in our post-Reformation Protestant tradition. So things that are not validated, in my mind, uh, you just don't want to, you don't want to preach. You want to preach the things that, you know, kind of like no one can disagree with. Um, and it's that, blatantly obvious. Blatantly might be too strong. Because uh, for someone listening to this, none of it may seem blatant. Well, I mean, if Jesus, when Jesus is like, as Jonah was in the belly. Yeah, like, that's, that's right. obvious. Yeah, but see, people see that as obvious, but they don't assign the same obvious status to all the other three dangerous peeps. Yeah. So, which to you is probably a no-brainer. When you see the one, and, and see, that's the thing, is we've got to let the apostles be selective. They're obviously not going to cover, you know, all 39 books of the Old Testament. They're, they're picking and choosing what they're using, but we're getting a sampling. So as we listen to the way they quote a single psalm, we then get a whole category that we can apply to many. So, uh, okay, no. so my, my, my central answer is I think yeah. you want to be careful uh, to not, because that, that's really what got this I mean, if you read Origin on Genesis 1, it'll make your skin fall. Because he's, he's got all kinds of crazy reptiles and this, this means that, and people just they completely write off the whole thing. In your ministry, you don't want yeah. your congregants yeah. to do that. You want to so, stay already leery of it. It's so deeply, so deeply entrenched because dispensationalism is so So I would say it's just not a wise It's the wood there through the cross. I'm not going to deny that. But I don't have that. There's like a direct correlation from there, but it's like kind of beholding Christ. I'm not sure what you're saying. If we see it, and there's other things that come out from that. But we read I'm still not sure. I guess I'm like, I have to on We're desiring to pastor churches to help people to read that way by not just preaching it, but just showing a hardcore How do we get people to start reading it? I 
All right. So let me just ask you, what do you what do you think religious affections means? And I and I know I'm asking that question cold. So I don't I'm not I'm not expecting you didn't necessarily know what that is, but let's just get out there where we're starting from. Because the way that Edwards uses the word affections is probably not the way you use the word today. When you use the word today, what do you, what do you mean? A feeling. Okay, it probably is close to being synonymous with emotions. Is that fair? Tell me your name again. Stephen. Yeah, Stephen. Do you all agree with Stephen? Is that fair, the common usage of it today? Uh, and it's a, it would be a positive emotion. You know, we want to feel affectionate for our children. We want to feel affectionate for our spouse. Some people feel affectionate toward their dog. Um, I'm actually, I have a, a, a grand dog. And uh, I really like this dog. This dog is my daughter's dog. It's a little mutt of some type. I think it's got some Australian shepherd in it. It's really fast. It can jump. I mean, it's vertical. I don't know what its vertical is, but it, you know, it could be in the NBA. I mean, this, this dog, you can throw something and the dog flies after it, jumps up and grabs it in the air. It's one of those kind of cool dogs. And I don't have to take care of it. This is what's good about being a grandparent. Um, but if, if I'm outside and the dog sees me, it practically demands that I come over and pet it. It won't shut up until I come over. And we have a great time playing and throwing things. And, and uh, I feel affection for that dog. I really do. If something happened to that dog, I'd be sad. I really would. That's the way we tend to use it. Anyone want to hazard a guess how Edwards uses the term. Let's just deal with the noun and then we'll deal with the adjective in a minute. Affections. When he's talking about affections, does anybody want to hazard a guess at what Edwards is referring to? Kind of like the outpouring of 
Okay. Uh, the that, effects of it. Yes, that's not a bad guess at it, Josh. That really isn't. Maybe to, to home in on it a little bit, what, what Edwards is talking about is his understanding, and I think it was the general understanding, about the soul, the human soul. And they divided the soul into two aspects, into its understanding and its inclination. So the soul understands, it's, it's, it's able to discern things, make judgments about things, um, and then it's inclined, based on that understanding, it's inclined in a certain direction. So by inclination, we're talking about everything about us that moves us in a direction. It does include the emotions, but it also includes the will. It includes the mind. So understanding, we might say understanding is sort of speculative knowledge. It doesn't really move us. It's just our ability to get a hold of something, some idea. The movement comes from the inclination. And therefore, all of the basic faculties that you can think of, the mind, the will, the emotions, they're all a part of what inclines us in a certain direction based on this speculative knowledge that we've gained. He further defined, defi divides inclinations into two categories, basically two categories. There's mild inclinations, barely past indifference. So think about some things that you're mildly inclined toward, or you could be mildly inclined against. Can you think of any? I bet you had several of those kinds of inclinations at work today where you were just mildly inclined for or against something. I mean, I had the choice between two different lunches, and I picked one. Is that what you're It's a now? good example, Josh. It's an excellent example. And most of us could easily relate to that, couldn't we? You know, Eric and I went out to lunch at Wendy's after church, and uh, there was a couple of things that I was thinking about getting. And... Uh, I liked what I got, but I would have liked if I gotten the other one. I was just mildly more inclined to this than to that. Can you think of anything else? Mild inclinations. You're, you're moving, but the, the movement is not driven by a strong inclination. You could almost be close to being indifferent. I don't care. Anything else? How about what you, what you wore today? How, how Was that a big, painstaking decision to decide what you were going to wear today to church and what you're wearing right now? I'm guessing no. If, if so, we can talk afterward. <laughs> what else? What else? It's fun just to kind of think in Edwards's term about how our soul operates. I'm hoping, if you're married, that your choice of a wife was not in this mild inclination category. And if so, I wouldn't tell her that. That's all a joke. I'm hoping you're getting the joke. Anything else? Mild inclinations. They can be against, 
some things that you're against, you know, maybe regarding the Eagles-Cowboys game tonight. Um, or maybe you're, you're mad because the Eagles beat the Chiefs. That was a hard loss if you're a Chiefs fan. But my guess is, for the most part, most of you don't care much. You know, it's kind of like, well, you know, I'd like to see the Eagles get beat. But I don't feel strongly about it, and I'm certainly not going to watch the game. See, that's a mild inclination. Now, how about vigorous inclinations? Now, keep religion out of it. We're only dealing with the noun. We're not talking about the adjective yet. Think of more vigorous inclinations. And by the way, that's how Edwards defines affections. Affections are the more vigorous inclinations of the soul. So you've got understanding, inclination, mild inclinations, vigorous inclinations. That equals the affections. And it doesn't have to be religious. What are some examples of some vigorous inclinations? What are some examples of your affections, as Edwards is using it? Do you follow what I'm saying there? Can you give some examples of that? All right, yes, that's good. That's a good one, Zach. Some people feel very strongly about these kinds of things. Yeah, that's, that's, that's an excellent example. What else? Politics, forms of government. Yes, politics, forms of government, vigorous inclinations, and, and both ways. You can have affections against and affections for. Probably as we all went through COVID, there were a lot of vigorous inclinations manifested, weren't there? I mean, there were churches that split over that. What else? Road rage. Okay. Uh, are you saying that the people that, that engage in road rage? Okay. Not your attitude towards those who, or maybe it's your attitude towards those who engage in road rage as well. Yeah, road rage would be an example of a vigorous inclination, affection. Yes, Jonathan. Education. Can you embellish that a little? Some people may feel strongly in favor of private Christian school education or uh, uh, public school. Yes, or you could broaden that to say child rearing. Boy, there's vigorous inclinations regarding child rearing. Uh, very, very strong views on that. Against and for. What else? Oh, the NASB 95 is the only like, proper scripture to read. That's interesting. You're close. 77 is better, but I'm. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it, Baylor, I'm really proud of you for saying that. Because I think it's a better translation than the ESV. I'm sorry. I think it is. But, yeah. I mean, there's a, whole, there's a whole movement called fundamentalism that says what? KGV only. KGV only. KJV only. Yeah. That's pretty vigorous. You've got to admit. There's, that's vigorous inclinations. Those are the affections. That's right. A few more. Who said work? Can you embellish that? Um, 
Yes, that's probably one that depends on the person. Because there's some people that don't care. They're close to indifference. Take this job, especially in our day of remote uh, work, the, the workplace environment is, is much less of a, of a criteria. But some people, very career-minded, you know, they still work in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They want to be self-actualized. And uh, it would, for them, be in the affections realm, not just a mild inclination. Any other ones? It's kind of fun, isn't it? Maybe choosing a home. Yes, and maybe choosing where to live or what part of the country. Again, with, with the remote work ethos that we're in, I'm watching people reorganize their entire lives based on where they want to live, which usually means warm, um, uh, somewhere warmer than Vermont. Uh, so now let's put the word religious in front of it. So we know what affections are. They're vigorous inclinations of the soul, either against or for something. So Edwards uses the word religious to modify affections. He also uses the word holy. He also uses the word gracious. All synonyms. He means the same thing by by all of them. So how would you interpret the phrase religious affections? We know what affections means. The vigorous inclinations of the soul. Religious or gracious or holy affections. Anyone want to take a stab at that? It's probably what you think. But go ahead and try to articulate it. Okay, yes, convictions is a good word. That which was born of the Spirit, enlivening the soul to be alive unto God, okay. which works by God. All right, so now we're talking about those vigorous inclinations, as Rick said, clearly born of the Spirit, but those rigorous, uh, those vigorous inclinations toward God in Jesus Christ, and toward his kingdom. And of course, that must be accompanied by vigorous inclinations, affections against what? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Yes, that's a pretty good way to say it. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Anything that is contrary to God and his kingdom, to God and his son. Rick, go ahead. Are you familiar with R.L. Dabney's practical, practical philosophy? I know the author, but no, not that work. He has a, a, a treatise dealing with human emotions that is just fantastic because he takes the main categories like Edwards does and shows from barely having a pulse <laughs> to you know the exuberance. Yes. But he uses this phrase in there emotions is the temperature of thought. I like that. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a nice way to say that. Yeah. The temperature of thought. And that fits nicely into the idea of affections. Right. Because we're, our emotions reveal our affections. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about 
your spouse. How, how many are married again? So the majority of you are married. And you think about what she wants more than anything. She mm -hmm. wants you to be vigorously inclined toward her. Doesn't she? She wants you to have affections for her. That your mind, your will, your emotions are interested in promoting her and just as vigorously interested in protecting her from anything that doesn't promote her well-being. And now we're just talking about God. And our emotions give us a clue as to what the temperature is of our, of our, of our thoughts. Any, anyone else want to take a crack at religious affections? Are religious affections divorced from understanding? We've got two faculties of the soul. Understanding, inclination. Affections are the more vigorous inclinations. Religious affections are the more vigorous inclinations toward God, toward His kingdom, toward His Son, versus vigorous inclinations away from sin and the devil and They should. That's right. And well said, Rick. Well said. In fact, that's why Edwards wrote religious affections, fanaticism. And when you read it, and I want to be careful here because I think every branch of Christendom has something to teach us, um, and I think the charismatic Pentecostal branch of Christendom, which has become the largest branch within Protestantism. In fact, it's so large that it's being considered its own branch. So there's Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, and Pentecostal charismatic. That's how it's being talked about. It's so large. I think what they can teach us is to worship like the psalmist enjoins us to worship. I think our worship is tepid. I'm not saying our hearts are tepid, but the expression of it, in my mind, doesn't line up with what the psalms are enjoining us to do. And I think when we get to heaven, we're going to look back and say, my goodness, that was a bit lame. That was a bit lame. That's just my opinion. You don't have to buy that. The problem, though, is exactly... I think what Rick has said, when it's not based on sound understanding, like in Edward's day during the First Great Awakening, it turns into chaos. It turns into chaos. And Edwards is writing religious affections to protect it from turning into chaos. That's another reason to read it, because you'll get a better sense of what's going on in your world right now from reading that than anything contemporary that you can read. There's nothing new under the sun. And Edwards was a scientist. And he carefully, in the laboratory of the Great Awakening, studied what true religion looks like. And we got his findings in 1746. The Great Awakening frontier aspect started in 1734. The mainstream Great Awakening in 1740. 
it was largely over by 1742-43, and Edwards released religious affections in 1746. So he had carefully studied it and turned it over in his unbelievably brilliant and pious mind, and we get the results of it. So it's amazingly diagnostic for our day, very helpful. Edward's main thesis is this, though, as important as understanding is, his main thesis is this, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. True religion, real Christianity, actual conversion, it exists, it consists in great part in holy affections. I've listed that for you on your notes there, right under two, Roman numeral 2b. True religion in great part consists in holy affections. And what are the holy affections that we see in Scripture? Let's just brainstorm. You actually know these. You're just not used to thinking about them like this. What are the holy affections that we have in Scripture? Okay, all right, a panting or zeal. We could just say zeal. Zeal is uh, an easy one to relate to. What else? By the way, you know my favorite example of zeal in the Old Testament? Can anyone think of a really graphic example of zeal in the Old Testament? I think his name was Phineas. Throwing a spear. Yeah, in Numbers 25, I think it is impales those two people that are doing what they shouldn't be doing right into the ground and he's hailed as a godly man zeal for the Lord what else when you think of affections what's numero uno yeah love love is the is the the most uh uh publicized affection in the Bible. What's the great command? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength, and a second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two commands on which the entire Old Testament is based. So, love, love for God, and love for people, and particularly for His people, is the highest, the chief affection. What else? There's plenty of other ones. Hatred. Hatred, that's right. Don't think that hatred is always bad. You know, we're, we're not trying to promote a Mr. Rogers version of the Bible. I like Mr. Rogers somewhat, but you would think that there's nothing to get mad at. There's nothing to be angry toward. You don't see that in Jesus' life, do you? I mean, that little temple scene uh, would have gotten a rise out of, out of the press in America. They, I'm sure, would have labeled that as violence. Uh, so proper hatred toward sin, toward the flesh, toward the devil. Jordan. Uh, worship and praise. Okay, let's say, yes, let's say joy. Okay. Joy would be at the affectional level. 
And that will evoke worship and praise. That was one of the things in the book that I really enjoyed was those phrases that he used. Like, um, he's like, just because you have a lot of joy in the way you worship God isn't a sign that you're saved. That's right. You have no joy when you worship That's God. a problem. You serve it or not. That's right. That's a problem. Oh, okay, because whenever you brought up the Pentecostal thing, and then, yeah. but then the far other side is like, well, it's like, oh, yeah. That's and where if the understanding isn't right, it's a lot of noise. Yeah. It's just a lot of noise. Other affections. Well, God says that He dwells with him who is of a lowly and contrite heart. And okay. So we should have a strong desire, inclination towards humility. Okay, that's good. That's good. That's good. And just desire itself. Um, for the right things versus the wrong things. Desire, your appetite, your lusts. You know, when we, when we read Galatians 5, uh, the, when he says the spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh lusts against the spirit, that's the word. We usually hear lust and we think it's all bad. No, it isn't. There's good lusts and there's bad lusts. And that's an affection. We want to have a lust or desire. That's less inflammatory, less controversial. We want to have a strong desire for the things that are good, ultimately God, and we want to have a strong desire against the things that are bad. You're getting the idea. So Edwards is saying that true religion in great part consists in holy affections. Now in part two, he is describing things that um, are... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm in part, I got confused here. Um, no, in part one, he's, he's buttressing that. Um, and then in part two uh, of his work, where I say describing holy affections, he's describing what are things that are not necessarily signs of holy affections. Because remember, we can't see the affections. The best we can do is see the signs or the manifestations of those affections. Now, that list, which goes from, from A to L, is a list that he's saying, these were things that the enthusiasts were manifesting, but Edwards is very measured. He's not saying the presence of these things marks it as false religion. He's not saying that. He's much more objective. He's saying these things... <clears throat> don't necessarily mark holy affections, but they don't necessarily not mark holy affections. You know, uh, on A, it is no sign one way or other that religious affections are very great or raised very high. So you can have a tremendous fervency. Saul prophesied with the prophets. Does anyone here think Saul was a Christian, that Saul was a saved man, a regenerate man? I'm hoping you don't. He's a seed of the serpent. He spent most of his life trying to kill David. Um, but he had high affections. It is no sign that affections have the nature of true religion or that they have not, that they have great effects on the body. So now we're talking about all the, the, the somatic impact. Now notice he's not saying if, if there are effects on the body, it's bad. 
we got to be careful to not go the other way. You know, when, when, you, when you read the Psalms, are there effects on the body? What are some of the effects on the body that you see in the Psalms? Which is the Christian's hymn book. I think that's a fair way to describe it. What are some of the, the bodily affectations? Bones are dried up. What's that? Bones are dried up. Okay, you're talking on the negative side in Psalm 32. So yeah, there's maybe we could say full-scale depression in all the somatic manifestations of that. Yes, okay. That, that's a more internal thing. What would that maybe look like? Fainting. Yeah, fainting. What else? What's that? Yeah, leaping for joy. That's the promise in Isaiah 35, is it not? Uh, what else? See, we're, we're getting nervous here because we're reformed, and we're, 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 I'm going to trap you. You can feel the trap coming, can't you? Of course, you can just do what Calvin did. He said that was all for a previous dispensation. He writes off Exodus 15 like that. Because what are they doing in Exodus 15 after the entire Egyptian army is killed? Dancing, playing tambourines. It is a, it is a wild time of celebration. But I don't think we can do that. How about dancing? Is dancing in the Psalms? It is. Many times. Is shouting in the Psalms? It is. Many times. So would a modern example perhaps be that while I was singing in worship, and I really felt something strong, and I'm not normally a hand raiser, but I felt my hand going up. Is hand raising in the Psalms? All over the place. All over the place. And it's in the New Testament. The men in 1 Timothy 2 are to do what? Pray with holy hands. I mean, that's the way the Jews prayed. They were reaching out to God. So he's not saying that's necessarily bad. He's just saying it doesn't necessarily portend religious affections. That's all he's saying. It's no sign that affections are truly gracious or that they are not, that they cause those who have them to be fluent, fervent, and abundant in talking of religious things. I love the way he says that. I mean... It's like just because somebody's gabbing about it, talking about it, doesn't mean they own it. That's all he's saying. It's no sign that affections are gracious or that they are otherwise, that persons did not excite them by their own endeavors. So this came over me. You've heard that kind of argument, haven't you? It's like, I don't know what happened, but uh, it just was clear that I was supposed to do this. Well, but divorce is wrong. I've, I've had guys in my office telling me that it feels right to them. You know, it came over me. And I can't explain where it came from. Well, I can. It came from the devil. That's where it came from. It certainly has no root in God. Uh, e, it is no sign that religious affections are truly holy and spiritual, or that they are not, that they come to mind in a remarkable manner with texts of scriptures. I mean, how often are people eliciting some kind of vision? Or, I heard this voice. Now, I want to be careful to not just set aside all of them. So let's just set aside 99.9% .9 of them. I think they're very suspicious. I think they are. It, it is no evidence that the religious affections are saving or that they are otherwise, that there is an appearance of love in them. 
I mean, even the Gentiles love their own. We've got to be careful here. Persons having religious affections of many kinds accompanying one another is not sufficient to determine whether they have any gracious, gracious affections or no. So the, 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 the number of affections don't necessarily mean anything. Nothing can certainly be determined concerning the nature of the affections that comforts and joys seem to follow in a certain order. So there was, a, there was kind of this, their, their version, it was a sort of an order salutis of true conversion. And they said, here's how it happens. He's saying that doesn't necessarily mean anything if you can say this is how it happened. It followed some apparent divine plan. It is no certain sign that affections have in them the nature of true religion or that they have not, that they dispose persons to spend much time in religion and to be zealously engaged in the external duties of worship. My goodness. Think of all the major world religions and the people that are dedicated to those world religions. It doesn't mean anything necessarily. Nothing can be certainly, or it is not a certain sign of affection uh, that, that they dispose persons to spend. No, I said that one. Nothing can be certainly known of the nature of religious affections that they much dispose persons with their mouths to praise and glorify God. You know, just because you're, you're verbally acknowledging God doesn't necessarily mean anything. Yes, Zach? There's no external. Yeah, so um, basically that like finding assurance and salvation in any of these things is wrong-headed. Yes, he is saying that. Is Find, that finding mean? assurance. He's not saying that the presence of those things mark false religion necessarily. But yes, he would not want you to ground any assurance of salvation with the presence of those things. He's absolutely saying that. Follow up on that, Zach? No, I was just, okay. I was just wondering. Yeah. If, Rick, question? No, I was just going to say that you know, there's a, a humorous uh, story of Andrew Bonard writing in his journal. When he took his first pastorate, he was reading the book of uh, First Corinthians. And when the Lord gave the impression to Paul to go to Corinth, he just knew God was giving him the impression going to this first pastorate and there were many souls to be saved there. Ten years later when he left, he says, I have learned, I'm not Paul, and this was not Corinth. And that the danger of grounding things on our impressions mm -hmm. or our emotions is very dangerous. Yes. Uh, and that they need to be looking and grounded in the scriptures yes. bearing witness to our soul. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's a good word, Rick. It's no sign that affections are right or that they are wrong, that they make persons exceedingly confident. <laughs> He's not knocking confidence. He's just saying don't, don't take from that that therefore we've got true religion. Nothing can be certainly concluded concerning the nature of religious affections that the relations persons give of them are very affecting. So the fact that, that there's been an intense effect on you doesn't necessarily tell you anything about the genuineness of those affections. Now part three is where the rubber really hits the road. Part three is where Edwards starts to lay out 
what really are 12, what he considers 12 signs. He lays it out in 14 sections, but sections 12, 13, and 14 are all one sign of Christian practice. Uh, these are the signs of holy or religious affections. In other words, Ed, Ed, Edwards is arguing this. If true religion, if true religion to a great part consists of holy affections, then it behooves us to try to understand the manifestations of those, of those affections, the markers that reveal those affections without, as he says in his prelude, becoming soul police. That was one of the things that the enthusiasts were doing. They were going around saying, this one's a Christian, that one is not. And Edwards says, in my vernacular, that is way above our pay grade. The, the sure foundation of God is this. The Lord knows those who are his, 2 Timothy 2 says, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Uh, we're not to pull out the tares. That's something that's the sole prerogative of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes back. Um, it's, too, it's too difficult for us. We just don't have the knowledge. But these things can at least help us understand better where we are, and as we minister to others, perhaps be helpful to them in knowing where they are. And like I said, he gives 12. I break them down into two groups, what I call the foundational signs, which are the first four, and then the remaining signs, which are the last eight. Actually, 14 sections, but only, uh, I'm sorry, actually 10 sections, but only eight signs. And I think what I'm going to do, because every one of these is got its own class that needs to be devoted to it. I'm going to take a risk and add an assignment to January 28th to read my handout, to read those signs, those 12 signs. And we will start class next time going through those. Now that you have the foundation of knowing what Edwards is talking about, and I've spent a fair amount of time trying to summarize those signs so they'll make some sense to you. Um, and so let me ask you to add that to your assignment. And we'll spend, you know, we'll spend the first half hour talking about that and write out some questions. Say, either I don't get this or I don't buy this. And that's okay. Engage it. Um, and what might happen is as you're reading those, you'll then be inclined to look at this book and kind of read how they how how storm summarizes it and that'll be a nice little research some of you might even be so bold as to and you you can probably google religious affections and get the full text of it i'm guessing did anybody try to do that i mean it's probably a pdf of religious affections and you could easily then say okay i want to i want to get this one those first four are the hardest. They're the most philosophical, though thoroughly grounded on Scripture. But he's dealing with, he was a metaphysician. He's dealing with metaphysics. It's, I have found them difficult to read, but very profitable.
extremely profitable. All right. Well, we've had a good run here. I'm hoping that this was of some encouragement to you. Are there any questions at all? Well, I hope you have a wonderful time with your families over the holidays. It's hard to believe. It's only 15 days away. Hoping that you're not in too much of a mad scramble. Uh, my wife and I are still under the delusion that we can get gifts for all 17 of our grandkids. <laughs> I, I, I know that, that Rick, how many do you have, Rick? 35. 35 grandkids. So I feel like I'm just a novice, but 17 <laughs> is a lot. And, uh, and uh, so our, our bank accounts have been able thus far to support that, and we love doing it. And uh, I even get something for my grand dog, and, uh, and, uh, who always seems very appreciative for any treats that I give him. So, uh, well, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this. We don't want to be deceived, and we don't want to be unhelpful to those that we minister to. We don't want to be arrogant but we don't want to take full, ex full advantage of the information that you've given us in your word. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to minister well to, to those in our circle. And, uh, and Father, that we would go deep in our understanding of the nature of of saving faith, what it looks like, how it plays itself out uh, in the life of a Christian. Thank you, Father, for men like Jonathan Edwards. We know that he's not infallible, but yet you've used him mightily, and I pray that you would use him profitably in our lives as well. We thank you for all these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good to see you. Thank you. You're welcome. That's Stephen. Um, number one, thank you for ministering to my family this morning with uh, your message. I've got two females in my family, my wife and my little six-year-old girl. This week. My wife had been saying this yeah, week how much she wanted to really um, see Christ in his beauty. No kidding. She started crying before you even got started. She's just like, this is what I need before you even get started. And my little six-year-old was like, yeah, I couldn't find him after the service, but I was going to tell him. Good preaching. <laughs> well, good for her. Good for her for listening and even having an opinion on it. Well, I know. Well, you, when, you, when you spoke specifically to young people and brought the example of the president, you could just see my kids kind of perk up a little bit like, oh, yeah, he's talking about this. Yeah, so, well, you're welcome. That was you're good. Welcome. That was good. Well, following up on Zach's point, um, I was thinking of Hebrews 6, where, you know, it's that apostasy, apostasy chapter, where there's the, those who have tasted and fallen away. Um, and the writer of Hebrews in verse 9 says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work.
and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, you know, pressing on, pressing on. So is the writer of Hebrews there looking for some assurance or to convey some level of assurance with the outward stuff? I mean, I know that you've got to be careful with the outward because I hear whatever you say. But why, why does the writer of Hebrews not say, well, you know, of course the gospel is this, you know, are you putting your faith and trust in Christ and come alone? Why, why do you go to that extra? My answer is he's not uncomfortable referring to those outwards. Now, Zach, I understood that I'm not the outwards under part two of Edward's work. Which are not involved. Well, they're a, no, they're external, but they're not. They're all. He's going to commend them, like in chapter ten. You know, they they were willing to endure the seizure of their property. They were willing to visit those who were in prison. Not not caring about their own lives. They had quite an impressive resume. Of, of standing firm in the midst of that's what he's convinced of on the basis. That's the basis for his conviction of better things. But these things that I was reading here has none of them. In fact, I would say the things he's talking about are under the last three sections. He's, he's commending their practice, their Christian practices, like the practice of holiness. So, it all gets there, and it is the grounding. He's quite repetitive on the fact that what grounds our assurance is our changing okay. And Christian practice is a high water mark, especially as it relates to the is that helpful? Thank you. Hey, Rick. It's been a while. Um, I just wondered if you had a chance to look at the book. I haven't. Okay. Um, not, and, and it's I know not, it was kind of an imposition. Yeah, it, was, it, it wasn't an imposition, and I've actually got it on my shelf close by. Being in the PhD program, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm having to be very selective. Yes, oh, I understand. I, I have reading reports that I have to give and give way too much reading. Um, but I'm intrigued with it, and I want to look at it. I just have you know, not this been able to. Sir, I really appreciate Chapter 14 and Chapter 16. Are dealing with that. Just open up the explosion. Yeah. 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 I, I knew we were a kindred spirit just yeah. by listening to your talk. Uh, but again, I understand. decisions have to be made. I do understand yeah. that, and I want you to know. I just fall to your feet. Well, thank you. That's all. Thank you very much, Rick. Yeah. That's very humble of you. Thank I you. Do, I do respect you. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I appreciate that. I really do. It's humbling to have you 